Greetings, I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to this second public lecture in the OHC's annual named lecture series. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 1851 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the coast reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the U of O, to Oregon, and to the world. In following the indigenous protocol of acknowledging the original people of the land we occupy, we also extend our respect to the nine federally recognized indigenous tribes of Oregon, the Burns Paiute tribe, the confederated tribes of the Coos, Lower Umpqua and Suslaw Indians, the confederated tribes of the Grand Ronde, the confederated tribes of Siletz Indians, the confederated tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the confederated tribes of Warm Springs, the Coquel Indian tribe, the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua tribe of Indians and the Klamath tribes. We express our respect to the many more tribes who have ancestral connections to this territory, as well to all other displaced indigenous people who call Oregon home. The Oregon Humanities Center's theme for 21-22 is Imagining Futures. The series seeks to re-examine some of today's pivotal social issues in order to envision a more just and sustainable future for all. As with all OHC-themed lectures, our series seeks to create space for experts to share their research and knowledge and to foster conversation and understanding. We'll have time for Q&A at the end of the talk. If you have questions at that point, please type your questions into the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. I also need to give my customary thanks. First, thanks to the OHC's incomparable staff, Associate Director Gina Turner, Program Coordinator Melissa Gustafson, and Communications Coordinator Peg Gearhart. Second, thanks to many of the OHC's generous donors without whom we could not support the kind of innovative humanities research, teaching, and public programming that we do. And thanks last of all to all of you for joining us this afternoon. I'm delighted now to introduce our speaker, Daniel Martinez-Hosang, Associate Professor of Ethnicity, Race and Migration and American Studies at Yale University. He also holds a secondary appointment in the Department of Political Science. Prior to joining the faculty at Yale in 2017, Hosang was an Associate Professor and Department Head of Ethnic Studies and Political Science at the University of Oregon. He also served on the OHC's Faculty Advisory Board. Professor Hosang will present this year's Lorwin Lecture on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Created in 2009 with funding from the estate of Val and Madge Lorwin, the Lorwin Lectureship Endowment brings exceptional scholars and public intellectuals to Eugene to promote greater appreciation for the importance of civil rights. The lectureship, overseen by the College of Arts and Sciences and the UO School of Law, rotates among three UO research centers, the Oregon Humanities Center, the Wayne Moore Center for Law and Politics, and the Center for the Study of Women in Society. Both the Lorwin Lectureships aim to promote and illuminate the importance of civil rights 
and our theme of imagining futures explain why we invited Dan Hosang to be this year's Lorwin lecturer. Dan Hosang's numerous publications include the forthcoming edited volume, Under the Black Light, The Intersectional Vulnerabilities That the Twin Pandemics Lay Bare, co-edited with Kimberly Crenshaw, as well as the authored volumes, Racial Propositions, Ballot Initiatives, and the Making of Postwar California, 2010, Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race, and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity, 2019, co-authored with UO Professor of Political Science, Joseph Lowndes, and A Wider Type of Freedom, How Struggles for Racial Justice Liberate Everyone from 2021. Wasang has also co-edited the volumes Racial Formation in the 21st Century, 2012, Seeing Race Again, Countering Colorblindness Across the Disciplines, 2019, and Relational Formations of Race, Theory, Method, and Practice, 2019. Given Professor Hosang's expertise and extensive publication, there's little doubt that his Lorwin lecture this afternoon, A Wider Type of Freedom, How Struggles for Racial Justice Liberate Everyone, will not only help promote a greater appreciation of the importance of civil rights, but also help us to imagine a better, more just future. Please join me in welcoming Daniel Martinez Hosang. Oh, hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much, Paul, for that really kind introduction to my like dear friends and colleagues and students. You don't know how much I would love to be in your presence now. Um, I'll just say quickly and just to express my gratitude to everyone for being here tonight. Um, but just to say like just how profoundly important the 10 years that I spent at Oregon was to my life, to my intellectual development, my sense of um, solidarity, collegiality, so to all the um, students I had the privilege of working with and my dear colleagues in ethnic studies and political science, the folks that worked at United Academics, the staff I had a chance to work with, um, it just left such a profound uh, imprint on me that I'm like always reminded of and has really helped me, um, you know, avoid a kind of like cynicism that can really grip us sometimes in academic spaces. So I'm um, just so grateful um, for that and to be in conversation with everyone. Um, I'm gonna, you know, share, um, and I'll, I'll share my screen in a, in a moment, um, some work from this uh, project, which I guess I'll just say at the outset is, it's mostly stories, um, stories of social movements and artists and writers. Um, almost all of whom have been written about by other people. So this is not a, some project of like discovering anything. It's trying to think about in this bewildering, intense, sometimes sad, sometimes hopeful moment that we now inhabit of deep uncertainty about our future. Uh, what are the stories? What are the songs, the works of art that might we might turn to and call on to give us some uh, bearing and framework and language and direction to, as uh, Paul put it really well, imagine uh, new futures. So uh, that's the spirit I wanna share this with, um, uh, sharing a series of stories with you. And we're gonna get to listen to some music, listen to some poetry, look at some art and uh, think about these stories together. So um, I wanna start by um, sharing this uh, photo. This is a really, really famous photo that circulated widely 
at the height of the civil rights movement in 1963. Um, it shows, and that my colleague, uh, Joe Lowndes at the U of O has written um, deep, like really thoughtfully about. But it shows uh, Governor George Wallace, who famously, Alabama Governor George Wallace, you know, when he ran for governor said, uh, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. The photo is called the stand at the schoolhouse door. And uh, Wallace was there to block the entrance of two, uh, it was an all white segregated school as it had been for uh, many, many decades, uh, two black students, including a black woman named uh, Vivian Malone. Now, um, this is important because this uh, photo, like many civil rights photos, um, was also a story. It was a story that tried to uh, help explain, offer a vision of uh, what freedom was. Um, Wallace was standing at the door, um, protecting in his terms, a certain vision of white freedom, which held that the keeping the school segregated was necessary for people who thought of themselves as white to be free. And this is the Assistant Attorney General um, uh, Katzenbach, who was there on behalf of the federal government to uh, demand that um, Malone be uh, admitted to the school. In many ways, the whole uh, this this iconic photo was it was staged. Um, um, Wallace knew Malone actually had already been admitted to the school. Uh, she, she had spent the morning uh, moving into her dorm room. Wallace needed to um, make the stand um, in, in part as a way to uh, affirm his vision of, of segregation. But you know, the uh, Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy, who later that night after, this is a photo of Malone being admitted uh, into the um, university, um, also needed this image because for Kennedy and for many, many liberals at the time, it was a story about uh, what uh, the vision of civil rights would deliver, which was a vision of entry into the dominant institutions in the US as a consumer, as a worker, as a voter, to serve in the military. That was the freedom that was promised. And Kennedy was very, very clear, he said, you know, what Wallace did, that's not, that's not what America is, that's not our, our, our uh, civic values. But once, once people enter, once uh, Black folks in particular enter, they too now have responsibility. They have to demonstrate their, their worthiness and, and also made very clear that actually nothing is guaranteed. But in this freedom, you have the right to compete and show your merit but nothing else is guaranteed. And this is important because, you know, when, when Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King, who I'll, I'll, I'll draw on a, a couple of different times, when this speech first comes out, he says, gosh, you know, Kennedy like hit it out of the park. This was amazing. He was finally, he was so relieved that the federal government was gonna, you know, use its power to in, in, enforce this desegregation order. But within a few years, he, has, he makes this startling, startling admission to his dear friend, the actor and singer, Harry Belafonte. And he says, I've come to believe that we're integrating, 
sometimes Belafonte says it as, I've integrated my people into a burning house. I've come to believe we're integrating into a burning house. And in a few short years, King had really felt that the forms of freedom that Kennedy had promised, um, the right to compete in the marketplace, the right to seek a job, um, that those were not the actual basis of what would make people free. And this is not something, right, we associate with Dr. King, thinking that, this, that the civil rights movement was about um, integration into something that was in deeply, deeply in crisis. And King has this, he has this, you know, as, as Belafonte recounts this re remarkable thing, he says, you know, we can't just go into the burning house, but we can't just watch it burn. We have to imagine and reconstruct something else. If we think about Alabama today, uh, King's words will really, um, I, I think they're prescient, they're, they're, they resonate. This is a state like so much of the rest of our country that's uh, highly, highly militarized. I think I wanna say there's eight military bases that controls a huge, huge amount of land within the state. And that's true for many, many states, which means that you know, its wellness, um, its status, those resources are premised on the, the threat of violence in other places. Alabama's um, rates of incarceration today um, would place it among, even as a state, the highest, highest uh, in the world. And while it's true that there's a, um, a profound, profound racial disparity in those, uh, even the uh, um, white incarceration rate would place it on its own among the highest in the world. Low wage jobs run rampant. There was just a, a unsuccessful union organizing attempt, um, but the basic resources that people need for life to, to reproduce themselves, to build a, a household that, um, where you can make a life are in thin, thin supply. Opioid deaths, prescriptions um, before the pandemic um, uh, were already in a crisis mode. And, you know, while Alabama, like the rest of what's today the United States, was the ancestral home of, um, you know, many Native nations, I think seven in Alabama alone, now one, one small corner of the state uh, is the uh, territory of one federally recognized tribe, the Porch Creek Indians. What I want to just say about this is that, you know, there were these two visions, right? There is like... Wallace and his vision of kind of like segregation as freedom. And then Kennedy, who said, come into the institutions, there you'll be free. We'll admit you, you'll be a citizen, a worker, a voter, etc." Wallace lost, right? Wallace was put aside and indeed, you know, I think maybe 20 years later, he actually reached out to Vivian Malone and he apologized. He said, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. This Alabama is not just Wallace's segregated racist Alabama. It's also Kennedy's liberal free Alabama. And Alabama, as the rest of the South is, very much stands in for the country as a whole. Um, the, the kind of deep insecurity that American freedom provides. It's towards the very end of his life 
that King um, in one of his, in his last published book of essays says, uh, racism is a philosophy based on a contempt for life, contempt for life. And in our moment of uh, COVID and continued mass incarceration and state violence and the escalating threat of climate change, that sense of a contempt for life seems to capture so much. How is it that, with that um, the very thing we longed for freedom um, is so saturated with that, that contempt? And so part of this project and some of the stories I'm gonna tell or um, help us you know, think with are stories that try to imagine what is a philosophy of life that's not based on contempt that imagines other possibilities. And we don't have to go far because very, you know, um, ne next door to Alabama in Mississippi in 1964, the great civil rights strategist and organizer, Ella Baker, um, the very next year was leading a voter registration drive, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And Baker is addressing the night before this big drive, um, a packed church, black church in rural Mississippi, and um, they think because civil rights laws, many, many of the leaders at that time felt civil rights laws were in the precipice of getting them passed. And this is it, the struggle has been won, it's been realized. And Baker has to rally them. She has to get them to go out in this voting drive the next day, but she does not want them to think that what they're about to do is enter a kind of condition of freedom as Kennedy might have them believe. And Baker says, even if segregation is gone, we will still need to be free. We will still have to see that everyone has a job. Even if we can all vote, if people are still hungry, we will not be free. And this is, it's an amazing speech. You can find it online. Um, she says even, you know, I know there's white people in Mississippi who think of themselves as free. They, they think the state they're in is freedom. It's not. Our work is just beginning. This is not the basis. A vote alone does not uh, make someone free. Not that the vote's not important, but that alone is not free. And then she makes this kind of startling assertion. Remember, we are not fighting for the freedom of the Negro alone, but for the freedom of the human spirit, a larger freedom that encompasses all mankind. And so some sense there that in rural Mississippi in 1964, at stake was both the voting rights of many tens of thousands of black Southerners who had long been denied the franchise, but something else, something that affected a wide set of humanity. And this um, thinking, this, this way to connect the specific and the universal um, has a long, long history across many, many sites. And those are some of the stories I'm looking forward to sharing with you. The book itself, the, the um, title of the book, uh, is, is taken from a quote, um, a wider type of freedom, from the great C.L.R. James, a Trinidadian-born uh, political theorist and writer and cultural commentator, uh, political organizer, and he wrote this amazing, amazing book, A History of Pan-African Revolt, first published in 1939. 
And he's writing mostly, he's in London to others on the left. Um, he, he was himself kind of steeped in uh, Marxism. Um, and they're trying to figure out this world that's in constant crisis and tumult. And he says, you know, you think that the key to the world's salvation is located in the white workers in, in London and in Paris, maybe in New York, Chicago, and you're not paying any attention to all of these uh, Black-led struggles all over the world in South Africa and Alabama um, and uh, in West Africa. And he ends the, and he, and he recounts all of these in this, in this great book. And he says, you know, he ends the book with this wonderful formulation. The African bruises and breaks himself against his bars in the interests of freedom wider than his own. So at stake in the effort to desegregate and to uh, contest um, uh, apartheid and, and other forms of racial domination or wider, wider visions of freedom. And James was also very, very clear that um, black liberation held many universal insights. It held insights for all of humanity and, uh, and, and was you know, calling on his colleagues to take these seriously, to learn from them. And this was a quote that was introduced to me by the wonderful scholar activist, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, when I was in school, partly as a way to not, I think, have us um, kind of to think about the broad stakes of anti-racist struggles. And I'll just, I, I'll just talk about, you know, a couple of episodes in the book, and then I'm going to just dive into uh, two of the chapters uh, to hope to just to give you some sense. And just to start with something that's still in, you know, many of our recent memory, the um, uh, standoff and demonstration and amazing forms of organizing and mobilization uh, led by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in uh, North Dakota, in South Dakota in 2015 and 16 against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And just as an example there, there's very specific conditions related to that nation, to its uh, um, treaty rights and recognition and sovereignty with the US government, to its relations to land um, in that area. But I think we can also see at stake in their efforts to obstruct this transnational pipeline were many, many issues that affected many, many people. Much um, uh, um, uh, was at stake in that. Similarly, um, a really, really amazing organization in New York City, Daisy's Rising Up and Moving, which forms um, right after 9-11 in the wave of all of this uh, racial profiling among South Asians and Muslims in New York in particular. And they develop this incredible, incredible analysis that says, well, like the, the goal here is not just to exempt ourselves from this, because this is happening everywhere. It's happening on the Southern border. It's happening in detention that's taking place both outside and within the US. Uh, we have to link our efforts to push back against this profiling to those struggles because otherwise, all we're doing is shifting the terms of the subordination to someone else. And from their perspective, that's not what freedom is. And indeed they take their name from a black uh, labor revolutionary group in Detroit in the 1960s to very intentionally make those links. This kind of uh, sense that you can't just be free alone. You have, you're always having to think about those links. To this really, really remarkable um, labor uh, organizing effort in LA in the late 1990s in which 
Latino, mostly Mexican and Central American uh, supermarket workers who worked for Korean green grocers, large, large markets in um, downtown Los Angeles, um, tried to figure out how to build a multiracial union with Korean workers against Korean employers or visa, you know, um, in opposition to the really exploitive practices of Korean employers. So again, folks trying to think in these very specific terms about how they link their lives and their hopes and their possibilities uh, across other sites. So these are some of what um, uh, the, the book has and I just wanna now um, get into two chapters in particular. Oh, and finally, um, sorry, this um, wonderful story about um, students um, who uh, did this incredible, incredible sit-in outside of their high school in Phoenix in 2012. Um, this is really the start of the, a kind of uh, youth-led immigrant rights movement that, that wasn't just premised on finding a small group of people who might find the protections of citizenship. Um, and an amazing quote from one of the young women we see in the front to the right who said, you know, when I sat down in this intersection and there's a squad of mil you know, militarized police all around setting to uh, arrest them, they're all themselves undocumented, I never ever felt so free. And thinking about what that account of freedom is and governance is and a kind of collective sovereignty. So the idea that in each and across all these struggles, they have lessons and genealogies and insights for, uh, that are deeply relevant to our own time. This is just a, a quick uh, sense of the, just so you can get a sense of some of the kind of chapters. There's a chapter that I'll talk about now about the body. There's another one about internationalism and solidarity that I'll say a little bit more about. One on governance, what does it mean to govern ourselves collectively? And then a chapter as well on labor. I'm gonna say something about um, two of these and I'm gonna start with this chapter on the body, which is subtitled, A World Where All Human Life is Valued. Let me just say something quick about, uh, but this is important for us to, I think, think about, which is that the dominant conceptualization of the body in the US and across much of what we call the West um, is steeped in ideas of degradation and hierarchy. And indeed, this is Johann Blumenbach, one of the kind of, you know, leading uh, fathers of um, um, the field of anthropology, who actually bequeathed a term we still use, which is Caucasian. This is a, a, a moment when uh, scientists are trying to think about the kind of classificatory and typologies through which uh, human variety could be categorized. And he has a collection of skulls that are um, sent to him and he thinks, tries to group them together and declares that the most beautiful skull comes from the Caucasus region. And he says, I'll call this Caucasian. And there's, you know, uh, it's, it's an important reminder because the birth of so many disciplines uh, the, the natural sciences, but also the social sciences, arts and humanities are all created in this period in the late 18th and 19th centuries, expressly around the ideas of how we think about degradation and hierarchy, how we explain it and legitimate it. And this bequeathed by the 20th century, um, the, um, and is directly related to uh, the period of eugenics in which um, the, there was a science organized around figuring out who among us 
was to be protected and who was disposable. So some may know this history in um, the early 20th century, these fitter family contests that people could enter in state fairs in which you would, your whole family would enter and they would judge your physique and your face and your uh, other attributes uh, to, to declare and figure out where you belonged in the hierarchy, whether you were uh, worthy of violence or could be protected from it. Uh, this led to um, uh, uh, a wave of dozens of states passing laws that permitted the involuntary sterilization of a whole, whole set of people. Something like 80,000 people across the country in the 20th century are sterilized involuntarily, including 20,000 in California. Oregon itself has a long history of that. My institution, Yale, has a long history of eugenics. But I raise this to say that it, it, it was an ideology. It was a sense of how we understand bodies and difference between bodies, and that hierarchy and degradation were kind of fundamental attributes of humanity. Uh, and, and, and that the goal of, of science and research was to explain degradation. Before I talk about some of the organizing, I wanna just share this really wonderful quote because from W.B. Du Bois in 1935, because sometimes when we think about this era of eugenics and forced sterilization, we think, well, that's, it's horrible, but um, you know, people didn't know any better. It was kind of the current of the day. It was just how people thought. And you know, while all these uh, uh, researchers and academics at many institutions, University of Oregon, Yale, and many others were producing knowledge about eugenics. Uh, du Bois had this to say in um, uh, Black Reconstruction in America. This whole phantasmagoria, and by that he just meant the whole kind of fiction of race, has been built on the most miserable of human fictions, that in addition to manifest differences between men, there is a deep, awful, and ineradicable cleft which condemns most men to eternal degradation. So he's seeing there, this is a, a philosophy, you, you cannot think outside of degradation. It is a cheap inheritance of the world's infancy, unworthy of grown folk. My rise does not involve your fall. No superior has interest in inferiority. Humanity is one and its vast variety is its glory and not its condemnation. And if Dr. King is you know, asking us to think about racism as a philosophy based on contempt for life, then this might be something approaching its antithesis, some sense in which we don't think about humanity as rooted in degradation. And while that obviously has clear, clear and alert and powerful um, forms of activation to the people who've been assigned uh, the status of the degraded, he's actually offering it as a, as, a, as a broad, broad philosophy. He's not saying we, we need to shift around who's degraded and who's not. He's saying we need to drop this idea that we can't think about the human condition without degradation. And this is important because the um, period of forced sterilization, while it's at its height in the 20s, 30s, and somewhat recedes in the 40s, and in, in most accounts, people imagine that after the Holocaust, it, you know, all, you know, for the most part, um, uh, is kind of no longer uh, practiced. 
In fact, after World War II, before World War II, it was often people who we would today think of as white who were the targets of forced sterilization. But after World War II, it was Mexican-American women, African-American women in particular, and Native women who were the targets of compulsory sterilizations. And this reached a height in the 1970s um, with uh, a really important campaign, uh, legal campaign, but also organizing campaign led by uh, Mexican-American women to uh, confront uh, a wave of sterilizations that was taking place at uh, Los Angeles Hospital, uh, the teaching hospital of the University of Southern California, documented in this wonderful movie, Nomas Bebes, in 2016. And this woman, Consuelo Hermosillo, um, you know, makes this remarkable comment. She was, um, um, had an involuntary hysterectomy. In, you know, she was very, very young after the birth of her third child. And um, a, a lawsuit was being brought together to try to challenge the hospital's authority to simply sterilize women uh, without their consent. And, you know, this was such a violent and degrading and humiliating and horrible experience for Hermosillo. But when they knocked on her door and said, look, are you willing to help and join this lawsuit? You know, she said, like, I can't let this happen to anyone else. And so she actually, in her account, told her family a story like she got a job somewhere um, and got on the bus every day and went to the courthouse in downtown Los Angeles to give her testimony to support other women. And there's something there that's remarkable because it actually isn't just, she, she's already suffered this violence, but she has a, like Du Bois, thinking uh, this shouldn't happen to anyone. I have a capacity to think beyond degradation. Um, I have a capacity to value everyone's life. And the protections that that lawsuit eventually helped to win, which are on you know, patients' rights and others, they're deeply important to all of us today, all of us today. And they're a direct result of the contest led by women of color uh, fighting this uh, terrible history. This is just because I wanna just lift up that there's a, an analysis and a, an insight and a power to what this work is and, and how it spreads across so many social relations. So the Committee to Enforce Sterilizations writes, the racism of the sterilizations goes further than who is actually sterilized. White workers are told that the reason taxes take out so much of their salaries is because they are supporting all these non-white people and their kids on welfare. Minority people are told that the reason they are poor it's not because of job and education discrimination, but because they have too many children. This helps direct the anger of these people towards poor people or towards themselves instead of these corporations and the government of the rich. So again, a very, very like um, both wide ranging, but also deeply nuanced analysis of the relationship between the degradation of the body and uh, um, uh, hierarchies uh, more broadly. I want to now just shift to one other story in this chapter on the body um, before turning to the militarism. And this is, um, you know, a well-known story in um, uh, feminist organizing in the 1970s, a woman named Joanne Little, who was arrested in uh, North Carolina. Um, she herself was for a, a kind of like a petty theft. She had grown up poor without access to resources. And when she was jailed in a local jail, her jailer uh, entered her jail cell with an ice pick and attempted to rape her. Little uh, fought him off 
uh, grabbed the pick, stabbed him, uh, eventually killed him and escaped. Now, um, she, was, she was kind of on the run for a couple of days, people had reached out. And then when she was finally got some assistance, she said, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna fight this. Um, I want the world to hear my story. Um, no, certainly black woman in the South had ever, ever um, been able to um, mount a defense of her own body in this way, given those kind of long histories. And her case became a national and even international uh, cause of uh, uh, mobilization and solidarity and organizing. And I wanna just show a couple of things and then listen to something. So people came from all over and they were very, very clear that it's not just that the, the um, her, she was acting in defense of her own body, but that they understood this as part of a long, long history of sexual assault against black women in the South at the hands of white men. This uh, vision in Little's case, it extends everywhere. And during the book, I, I found, um, I, mean, I didn't find, but came, became aware of this mural in uh, Chicano Park in San Diego, California, Barrio Logo. It's a, it's a famous, it's underneath a, a large freeway for folks who haven't been there and these, these you know, very large pylons and almost all of the images in this uh, park are draw from indigenous and Chicano um, sources and aesthetics and social movements and histories. This is the one place where a non-indigenous uh, and non-Mexicano um, person is represented and it's Joan Little, it's a poem by Joan Little that four Chicano women uh, put on this, on this um, pylon because they too understood that there was a relationship between what had happened to her and their own lives. They understand that across 3,000 miles from San Diego to rural North Carolina, they understood that in her assault, what happened to her um, could not just be understood as an individual incident. It had, it, it had much, much broader um, and, and more uh, capacious resonance. And I'm gonna play, um, you know, before we go there, this um, beautiful song by the group Sweet Honey in the Rock, which itself um, led by Bernice Johnson Regan comes out of Southern based uh, civil rights organizing called Joanne Little. Um, and as you listen to it and you know, look at the lyrics here on the screen, I, I, you can see again, something like the antithesis of the idea that humans are degradable. Some sense about rather than disavowing, pushing away, disowning the person who's subject to social uh, discrimination and stigma, the opposite move, claiming, bringing close, imagining and inhabiting lives together. And I, I think the, the lyrics very much speak to a much broader philosophy here. So let's just listen to this for two minutes. Who is this girl? And what is she to you, Joe? Jo Street, you go be judged by the company you keep. Well, 
controversy, I stayed real cool. Tell along came this woman, you know, five feet tall. Charged and did with breaking the law. And the next thing I heard, and it came on the news. First degree murder, she was on the And I'll just say, you know, you go listen to the rest of the song, but this question that they provoked, who is this girl and what is she to you, is again, a direct, direct response to this long history and genealogy in our dominant ways we think about bodies as something that you disavow and separate. And across the many sites that I'm trying to write about here, you can see a much different account of the body, one that's interdependent, one that in which people inhabit and are connected to one another's lives, and that there's no way for a body to be safe and healthy and have possibility uh, absent those connections. So it's a broad, broad philosophy, a whole other account of what bodies are and how we might protect them. That's actually so relevant in the time of the pandemic and how we think about the, the uh, connections between our bodies. I'll just say as the last part before we just go to this um, chapter on internationalism, you know, today there's a lot of coverage about the Supreme Court case from Mississippi um, and a very, very narrow, narrow way of thinking about uh, the, um, the legal right to terminate a pregnancy and to abortion. Um, a lot of the work that, uh, you know, that's in this chapter draws from, um, you know, this deep body of work that's, you know, widely written about um, around reproductive justice, which has a whole account of what the conditions are that all of us need to make decisions about to parent or to not to parent if we want to raise children, the conditions under which we raise them, the conditions under which um, uh, we would choose to uh, uh, give birth, the conditions under which we relate to one another uh, um, intimately. Um, and if you hear, this is Loretta Ross, who is you know, really one of the foremost um, writers, organizers, and theorizers, that vision of reproductive justice is broad, it's wide, it's deep, it's expansive. And the large, large majority of people, when you hear her and them talk about it in, in these uh, uh, reproductive justice groups, it resonates deeply. But you know, today, in hearing the coverage about this case, we don't hear about reproductive justice as the site on which many, many people might find possibility for their lives um, because it, it is in part imagined as like somehow marginal or not uh, directly relevant to some of that kind of abstract legal questions. So I, I wanna say in some ways, the answers for these moments are very much um, not even hiding in plain sight, they're in plain sight um, and, and they're ready um, to, to speak to wider, wider audiences. Bold Future is a wonderful, Women of Color led group in Albuquerque that's long done this work in the sister song, Women of Color Collective. Okay, um, I'm gonna uh, just go now to one more chapter and then I'll just wrap things up. And this is the chapter on um, internationalism. Uh, internationalism and militarism. And you know, part of the, what, one thing I wanted to say about this chapter is when we think about imagining new futures and new possibilities, um, we're also, we have to wrestle with the fact that many of us inhabit these kind of current systems of domination um, and actually get something from them, right? If it were just as easy to just reject 
and imagine and displace. And we didn't actually draw something from you know, the kind of status quo, this whole task would be much easier. So this is uh, very much a chapter about how if we want to imagine a world that's not marked by war and violence, uh, we have to think about how we extricate ourselves from those relationships and those structures. Um, and, you know, to, um, just one figure to really think about this is a, a really, really important Chicana activist, Elizabeth Petita Martinez, who just passed away um, this year. You can see the sign. This is a sign where she's marching um, against the, uh, I think, the first Gulf War, but linking Chicanas for Peace in the Middle East, this long, long history of thinking about how incidences of racial discrimination and subordination and violence within the US can never be separated from war making and uh, occupation and militarism abroad. And what we need to do to build um, the basis to demand that. And when I say to demand that, it's because we have to remember that the kind of like the deep uh, pressures and resources um, and efforts that are constantly made to incorporate people into militarism, including the people who have, uh, you know, arguably suffered uh, many of its greatest violences. So we know, um, you know, the armed forces in particular recruiting in communities of color and the kind of prestige and resources that it offers. This is a really striking photo from two years ago. Um, at West Point, uh, which graduated at the time the largest class of Black women in the uh, military academy's history, and you know this is I, I this is it's like a it's a it's fascinating because on the one hand it's like these military academies are rife with sexism and racism and patriarchy and discrimination. You can think about all of the uh, experiences of perseverance and suffering that the women pictured here had to endure. And at the same time that they're being recruited into a, a military machine that has bases and you know, something or a presence in a um, uh, hundred countries, uh, a budget that occupies um, something like $750 billion every year, they're being incorporated into a structure of violence. So there's a question here about how, and this is not just about them, but how all of us who can be drawn towards systems of domination might be asked to uh, imagine uh, uh, other possibilities. And, and I wanna just uh, focus here on one story. This is, um, takes us to 1973. This is an image of Nixon, Richard Nixon's uh, second inaugural address. And in the center of the screen is a singer, uh, Ethel Ennis, uh, a jazz singer who was uh, from Baltimore. Uh, Spiro Agnew, Nixon's vice president was also from there and he in, uh, invited her and she sings, she's invited to sing the national anthem um, at Nixon's Earth. And she's actually, she's a registered Democrat. She says, I just wanted to kind of sing a healing song for the country. This is at the same time when there's huge, huge protests gathering against the war in Vietnam. Um, and Nixon's refusal to withdraw troops and indeed his continued escalation of the war. And the amazing, amazing poet, June Jordan, was I think maybe 36 at the time, um, sees this and is trying to think about uh, how do I uh, talk to Ethelinus about what she has been conscripted into, what relationships, relationships of violence and domination um, uh, she's, she's now being asked to endorse, and how do I get, to, uh, get her to imagine doing something else? So I'm gonna play for uh, two minutes 
uh, this poem called Poem to My Sister Ethel Ennis, who sang the Star Spangled Banner at the second inauguration of Richard Milhouse Nixon, January 20, 1973, to think about that. What are the practices we might draw on to uh, address the ways that these structures uh, draw us in? Poem to my sister Ethel Ennis, who sang the Star Spangled Banner at the second inauguration of Richard Milhouse Nixon, January 20th, 1973. Gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. On this 47th inauguration of the Killer King, my sister, what is this song you have chosen to sing? And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, my sister, what is your song to a flag? To the 12 days of Christmas bombing when the homicidal holiday shit tore forth, pouring from the B-52 bowels loose over Hanoi. And the skin and the agonized, the blown limbs, the blinded eyes, the silence of the children dead on the street, and the incinerated homes in Bakmai Hospital blasted and drowned by the military, the American shit bomber dropping down death and burying the lives, the people of the new burial ground under the flag for the second coronation of the killer king what is this song you have chosen to sing my sister when will it come finally clear in the rocket's red glare my sister after the ceremonial gun salute the ceremonial rifle saluting the ceremonial cannons that burst forth a choking smoke to celebrate murder in that red that bloody red glare my sister that glare of murder and atrocity, atrocities of power, strangling every program to protect and feed and educate and heal and house the people talking about us, you and me talking about us. When will it be clear to you which night will curse out the stars with the blood of the flag for you, for enough of us? by the rocket's red glare. When will it be clear that the flag, that this flag is still there, is still here and will smother you, smother your songs? Can you see, my sister? Is the night and the red glaring blood clear at last? Can you see, my sister? Say you can see, my sister, and sing no more of war. This uh, recording is available at the Library of Congress. And again, I, I hope you might find your way back to it. And we can see so much happening there. Her address to Ennis as my sister um, and all the links she's making between what's happening, the struggles and crisis um, within the US and how they're deeply connected to the violence um, and the crisis and the destruction in Vietnam. Um, and, but still holding out some hope that Ennis can be, um, you know, not in today's terms, I don't know, either canceled or shamed or humiliated, but reminded that there's other possibilities. And uh, in the, even the very phrase, sing no more of war, it's the same phrase that Dr. King uses when he first comes out uh, against the war in Vietnam. And it's taken from a, a spiritual, you know, down by the riverside, so that there's a tradition of that. <laughs> of uh, um, refusing, refusing, and how do we um, uh, make that possibility of refusing uh, more accessible? And I'll just say quickly by, you know, just, you know, in this last part of way of conclusion that this is both, you know, Jordan's own brilliance, but again, part of a whole genealogy 
especially led by women of color in the 60s and 1970s that were doing all of this profound linking um, of questions of unemployment and violence and education within the US to uh, conditions of imperialism and war making abroad. This is Gwen Patton um, of the National Black uh, Anti-War Anti-Draft Union. There was they had a large, large conference in the, um, I think the early 1970s and had a whole program going to induction sites, talking to um, mostly uh, black men about the war they were being inducted into, the conscriptions they were getting and what was at stake. So um, long practices to think about how we think beyond uh, militarism. We can't just condemn it. We also have to think about how we build um, support uh, and investment in new possibilities. Just, uh, you know, a couple other very quick examples here. This is uh, Kyle Kajihiro, who is a uh, scholar activist um, who's done a lot of work with many colleagues in Hawaii about the role of the U.S. military in Hawaii and across many uh, Pacific uh, um, uh, Isles. And part of the point they make is that the, you know, the US military occupies, I think like a quarter of the island of Oahu. Uh, it's it's uh, fundamental, it's like deeply embedded in the, in the state's economy. Many, many people rely for it on jo uh, for jobs and um, you know, other possibilities. He leads, he and colleagues lead this detour of Honolulu that uh, takes people, um, you, uh, you can go on it still, um, to different sites to kind of educate, raise consciousness about the impact of the military. But part of what they understand is work has to be done if we are not just to imagine other possibilities, imagine a demilitarized Hawaii, imagine a Hawaii in which uh, native sovereignty is, is centered um, and not subject to the uh, authority of the military. That's going to take work and, uh, um, and, and the detour is part of that consciousness raising. Um, one of the, um, you know, just this, uh, this is the last part here, um, both Kajihiro and um, many other organizers who focus on US military bases say, look, if we get a base closed here, we know what the military is gonna do. They're gonna open it somewhere else. And that's not acceptable. It's not just acceptable to displace this to another site. So this is Vieques, uh, which is a, it's part of uh, Puerto Rico. It's a small island on the East Coast, which um, like many parts of Hawaii had long been a US uh, since the 1940s, um, uh, naval bombing range, uh, an area about the size of Central Park um, was just bomb, bomb, bomb to uh, smithereens every day. And there've been long histories of um, uh, uh, efforts to try to get the Navy out of Vieques. Um, in 1999, um, uh, US, I mean, a um, civilian employee of the Navy, uh, David Sanz, who we see here, uh, was in his tower and one of these bombs, an errant bomb, uh, landed on his tower. It was way off course and it killed him. Um, and that led to a whole um, international mobilization of people that came to Vieques and occupied the bombing range. And if we think again about the logic that permits the military to bomb a small place like this um, is that it's a, a logic of disassociation, disavowal. You can do that, I don't care, it's not significant. So in organizing to contest this, they were reversing that. They were saying, this is a place that matters, it matters broadly. Um, and uh, Kajihiro himself traveled from uh, Hawaii to Vieques with some, some other uh, folks from Honolulu. And when he landed, he told me the story when he landed in Vieques, he was wearing um, 
uh, a hat or a shirt about the campaign in, in, in Hawaii. And the folks in case right away knew what that was because there had been a long, long history of these anti-militarization efforts in Guam and in Okinawa and many other places in which people understood the relationships. They understood the relationships in these small places. This is the, um, and again, um, uh, and finally the US Navy in the early 2000s indeed closed the base and now their project is what uh, comes after the Navy is gone, what might be built after. And this is the last slide I want to leave us with uh, before I really look forward to your questions. Um, this is this was the official portrait. I guess I'll show this the one to the right um, that was often used as kind of as he was kind of martyred, and you know, um, Sanz was he was proud to be you know it was part of his identity. It was a job for him and for his family, and so it showed him in this salute. Uh, and um, this is a, a wonderful um, image uh, by a Puerto Rican Betis artist named um, Yasmin Hernandez. And Hernandez said, you know, when she wanted to um, uh, imagine him um, and memorialize him and mark his loss and the loss to his family, she didn't want to just recreate this militarized pose because it would somehow establish that his, him being embedded in his relationship into the structure of violence was kind of all that constituted and defined him. So she re-renders this, removing the salute with his hands behind his side and illuminating it with the uh, blue fluorescence. There's the, all around this part of Vieques, these bioluminescent fluorescent bays. And it's meant to invoke uh, the island's much longer history of uh, an indigenous presence, of an African presence, of a place that's connected to many, many worlds and peoples and possibilities so that we can think about Sands, um, not just as his horizon of life uh, being established as a military, but through much, much broader um, genealogies. Um, that's a, an image of Hernandez. And so I just wanna leave you with this image because I think that she's doing something in this which is that um, to imagine other possibilities than, than many of the terrible structures in which we're asked to inhabit now, uh, we have to recall these other genealogies, other histories, other things we inherit to think about what those might be. Um, and so I'm gonna leave it at that and say, thank you so much for your time and attention and really look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thanks, Dan, for that uh, challenging and inspiring talk and for sharing uh, this great uh, work that you've done in the book. And I have the book with me here and I would recommend, here it is, I recommend that people get this book. It's a wonderful, inspiring and educational book. Um, as I said, please, if you have any questions, just type them into the chat and I will share them with Dan. Uh, already one's come in. Um, in thinking about the newest strain of COVID, what advice or thoughts can you share regarding the tactics of exclusion being deployed against African citizens? How do we push back against the idea that it is the nation's best interest to exclude travelers, refugees, or immigrants? We certainly can't defeat the virus without ensuring vaccine equity rather than vaccine apartheid. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think that gets to the heart of it. I, you know, I wrote this, you know, just finished the book up as during the first wave of COVID. And I, I was struck by these kind of two like realities on the one hand, um, you know, there was some like, especially in, in 2020, this like profound sense of the interdependence and interrelationship of the world, that this was not something that, you know, could be, how we often think about 
you know, medicine in this country is just individualized and you have to like try to get the best kind of care for yourself. Um, that uh, people understood that that's not how infectious disease works and that's not how this virus operated. But on the other hand, as soon as the vaccine came out, you know, all those patterns about thinking about, well, how is it that I protect myself individually, right? Um, that was the kind of dominant, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, that's what we had to revert. And I say we kind of generally, like in the US. And um, so I guess what, what part of what that makes me think about is like both things are in many ways present in our consciousness, both that understanding of our interdependence and why, why, why we would need to think globally about vaccination strategies, about strategies of protection and wellness and mutuality and obligation. And that that individualism, that sense of like, well, my you know, orientation is gonna be to protect myself is also um, you know, a deep part of our inheritance as well. So I think you know, in terms of like strategies, what I'm struck by here across you know, so many of these examples is speaking to that vision um, and not interdependence as something that like weighs you down, right? It's like, you know, your advance, your protection is gonna come at my expense, but a vision of interdependence that actually is about protecting us all. And I don't think we draw on those kind of frameworks and ideas when we talk about, you know, the kind of narrow confines of policy. And, and in so many of these cases, you could see them talking about it. What is their vision for what will protect us all? So the next questioner uh, first notes that they love the way in which you combined firsthand interviews with current activists with 20th century movements and visual art and music. Can you talk more about your research methodology and the choices you made regarding creating a historical narrative? Thanks. You know, I, I, I was just, I guess, um, let's just say like, I, I think there's maybe 16 or 18 stories across the book, um, but you know, there's hundreds of these. There, there's so much, and, and part of what I was, I think trying to get at is like, there's this sense now that what like anti-racism means is um, kind of the incor equitable incorporation into institutions. So like, I'll just pull as an example, you know, like Goldman Sachs, the big investment rank, they have a huge program now around anti-racism. McKinsey and Company, this consulting that's involved in so much, right? So much driving the kind of, of global inequality, again, has this proposition of, um, about like you too can be incorporated into these institutions and that will protect you. So as method, part of what I was drawn to were a certain set of politics. And I, I, I find it because it's like, like on the one hand, it is true. You, when you're incorporated, you, you do get some protection. You do get some safety. Citizenship is not illusory. It really does protect people. Getting a job at Amazon can give you away. In. Um, and yet still the capacity that people said, like being incorporated like this isn't actually gonna like really in the long-term make us well and make us safe. Like we have a broader kind of vision. So as method, that's what I was really looking for. And that that sometimes took the form of, you know, um, more kind of formal academic writing. Sometimes it took the form of art. Sometimes it took the form of music and poetry, but it was always that that possibility was there that people in the face 
of violence and subordination they were experiencing had the capacity to think about other people and had that capacity to think about their interdependence. And maybe, you know, if like, I don't know, if June Jordan can think about that in the height and as, as did many, many millions of people during the war in Vietnam, we certainly can think about it today. So the next question is kind of a follow-up. Given the kind of power of this process of incorporation that you were just describing, where there are certain benefits that come from being incorporated, the question obviously arises, how do we, how do we get disincorporated? How do we get out from under this? And the question is about the importance or the agency of art, music, literature to aid in that process of helping to release us from the belief, the belief system that says the status quo is better and the only right way and inevitable. Yeah, I, that's such an important question because I think, you know, um, like even the most, um, oppressive, like forms of low wage work or, um, you know, like service in the military and all the danger and potential trauma that comes with that. Um, the, the concern is always, well, what's the alternative to this, right? Like, um, and, and the difficulty we have in imagining it. And so, I mean, I've, I've been thinking, you know, a lot about the OHC theme about it, because I think a lot of people are thinking about imagination. But part of this, I think what this history is about is that imagination isn't just a kind of rhetorical exercise. It's actually a very, very material process. It's a very material process to help people. And it's fundamental to you know, most good social justice organizing, which is to have people both think about and experience other kinds of relationships. Think about and experience other kinds of relationships so that they might have some confidence and faith and hope that uh, other possibilities are there. And, you know, I, I, again, I think this, we saw so much of this during the first part of COVID where there was an amazing amount of people trying to think about how you care for other people. You know, this sense of like, we've got to make sure everyone is fed, that no one is evicted, um, that people are just safe first. And at the same time that again, competed with this um, but who do I have to disavow uh, for myself to be safe? So I think in that sense, imagination has to be a, a, like a very concrete, concrete uh, set of actions and activities that can't just be kind of um, abstract in that way. Uh, next question is a fascinating and challenging one. One might look at the title of the book and wonder if freedom itself is a flawed concept because it seems to imply that there must be some condition of unfree in order for people to be free. Would you consider freedom to be insufficient for imagining new futures? Or is it possible to expand freedom to include more people and define more experiences? Yeah, I, that, what a wonderful question. And you know, clearly there's not some, we shouldn't like fetishize that. And there's so many different political articulations of freedom, market freedom, right? You know, kind of positive and negative versions of freedom. I, um, and I do, you know, what's interesting is like across so many of these sites, I found difficulty like, you know, you have Ella Baker saying, this is not free. We're fighting for a larger spirit, right? A larger set of possibilities. So I do think in that, in the sense that I'm at least trying to use it, it's about something that hasn't yet been realized. 
some sense of like possibility and well-being. I, I try to use these terms that it's, um, it's anti-subordination so that it means that, um, you know, domination and hierarchy can't be part of our social order. So you can be free, but free within a system of subordination. So one part of freedom has to be um, the lack of that, of, of subordination, that it's anti-subordination. The second, I think, is really about interdependence. It's about recognizing uh, a mutuality across lots of um, you know, sites of life. And the third, I'll say quickly, is, is about vulnerability and difference. That so much of um, how we're often socialized to think about wellness is to not be vulnerable, to try to make ourselves as invulnerable as possible. Um, James Baldwin called this the dream of safety, this idea that you could just you know, uh, protect yourself from all forms of harm and threat. And I think there's many other, uh, there's other possibilities in which vulnerability is actually deeply embraced and it's understood as kind of core to our condition. So um, I, I would say that th those are some of the um, like actual um, like material ideas that, that I, I think across these sites we might attach to freedom, that it's about anti-subordination, interdependence and vulnerability. So the next question asks, to what extent, if any, do you consider examples of freedom, work, activism around non-humans, whether the rights of nature movement, indigenous conservation work as described by Kyle Powis White or others? Your talk is very focused on human freedom. Just curious about your expa any expansion in the direction of multi-species freedom justice or the potential limits of such expansion. Dan, you're muted. You can't unmute. Hold on a sec. Sorry. Um, sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, that's like, it's so important. It's, it's outside of my area of expertise. I do have um, in the chapter on governance, part of what I, you know, I, try to draw this distinction between a very like, like such a stilted and parochial sense of what governance means in this country. It's like mostly voting and which means mostly designating authority to someone else. You do it every once, you know, or you don't do it at all. And it, it's so hierarchical. It's the idea that some people are possessed with the capacity to govern and others don't even have the capacity to like discern who's, you know, uh, can govern and that there's systems of governance. And I use here an example from a set of um, uh, uh, indigenous nations in the kind of upper Midwest who think about governance in much more sophisticated ways about human relationships, but also human and non-human relationships. And, uh, you know, understand that of course as being constituted by all of those. And that's not just a far more sophisticated sense of governance, but one that um, non-Indigenous people desperately need to learn from because it has uh, the capacity to think about those kinds of relations. So, it, it, you know, I think that's absolutely right. And I guess the last thing I'll say is the, the notion that you can turn life into a mass commodity the way we do like livestock and, um, you know, uh, 
those kind of like factory farming agriculture is obviously can't be separated to, from the kind of thingification that happens of people when people are turned into commodities for the workforce. So all of those have to be, and I think a vision of governance rooted in freedom would take all of those into consideration. It wouldn't just be based on voting in elections. So the next question, how can we get out in front of this conversation and move it down into classrooms to begin these exchanges earlier rather than attempting to revise the impoverished imagination later in the game? And this, this is a question from Milton Reynolds who also says, thanks as always for your work, Dan. Milton's wonderful and I've learned so much from him. He's a wonderful educator. I mean, you know, I, I'll, I'll just say that I've done, you know, one of the, um, like great opportunities I've had in the last couple of years is do much more work with K through 12 teachers, um, you know, many of whom are very skilled at taking existing bodies of curricula and frameworks and trying to reimagine it for these very purposes. And, you know, we, there's traditions of freedom schools and alternative spaces and community-based political education and consciousness that have been so important to social movements and reviving those kinds of practices uh, seems deeply necessary. But to the extent that education and knowledge production and consciousness still resides mostly in those institutions, I think there's ways of teaching in Connecticut where I am now, um, you know, efforts led to the passage of a class in Black and Latinx studies and history that's gonna be required to be offered at every high school in the state. Now that class can be a kind of thin multicultural version or it can be animated by some of these ideas. And so I work with teachers who are really trying to think about how classrooms can become sites of new knowledge. And I'll just say in the last, I came across this wonderful quote um, by W.B. Du Bois in 1919. Um, writing in the Atlantic, and he has this definition of democracy where he says democracy kind of is or it should be the practice of making everyone's education, um, you know, other, every other person, every other man's education, a matter of every person's desperate desire. So that's what democracy is. It's that we, we would desperately desire other people's growth, development, and education. And what if we started teaching about democracy from that as a point of view, as a basis, as a norm? Um, so I guess I'm saying there's small things we can do that would help reorient us rather than these rote lessons of trying to memorize you know, the uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights. Can you say a little bit about how the current controversy around the term critical race theory in um, secondary education has become such a flashpoint and complicates this idea of uh, a new kind of education in, in secondary classrooms? Yeah, that's a really important question. I guess I'll just say two things about that. One, <clears throat> I mean, the very fact that this um, these allegations that, that critical race theory, which was you know, not a part of public discourse at all until a few months ago became, you know, so captured the imagination of so many people is itself rooted in the very thing that Du Bois was talking about. My rise does not involve your fall. And based on this proposition that if we're, if we're attending to histories of racism and subordination and freedom, that if you identify as white and think of yourself as white, that means it's coming for you. And Du Bois is saying, that's not true. 
Um, and in fact, the very struggles we're engaged in, and he was writing this book about reconstruction and the way freed people in the South built schools and raised taxes and built public infrastructure that benefited many whites too, um, could in fact be uh, you know, important and resonant. So, I mean, I would say like a lot of the teaching that could be done under the rubric of critical race theory, which is about analyzing power and institutions in complex ways, could be deeply valuable to people that think of themselves as white, that could help them understand the crisis and the sadness and the sense of despair they feel. There's something in it for them also. But um, part of the reason it's so hard to make that claim is the very thing that Du Bois was talking about almost you know, 90 years ago, which is the, the kind of stigmatizing that if it's anti-racist and it lifts up the racially subordinated, it's gonna come at someone else's expense. And so there's a lot of work we have to do to put out a vision of anti-racism that actually has the capacity to um, make, um, preserve and reimagine many kinds of relationships. You spoke earlier about the efforts of corporate America in the wake of uh, COVID and especially the, the racial reckoning after the George Floyd murder and the other murders of, of, uh, of Black Americans about the efforts of corporate America to uh, implement diversity training and, and uh, this, th these kinds of efforts. But you didn't speak any uh, to that a comparable effort that's happening in the US Academy. And as a, a person who's writing about anti-racism who is in the academy, yep. it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on that trend. Yeah, this is so, so important. And I'll just go back to CLR James, but also many, many of the people who really in the 1960s, when the first waves of Black studies and third world studies and ethnic studies came into the academy, were very, very clear that the agenda was not you know, this is an amazing dominant form of knowledge production. And we would like a small little corner so that we can study the particularities that are minoritized people. You get philosophy, you get biology, you get anthropology, you get all of that. We just wanna be represented in this. CLR James himself says black studies is a study of Western civilization. It impacts all fields and all of those uh, fields and disciplines have to be contested and reimagined. So, um, and, and there are these moving accounts of how the civil rights and uh, anti-racist struggles of that period might lay claim to higher education. Um, Vincent Harding, who I write about in the book, an advisor to Dr. King, he says like, we don't want your mediocre institutions. We don't wanna just sit next to you. You're cynical, you're afraid, right? We have hopes to transform these institutions for everyone. I do think that one of the, post-civil rights challenges has been that programs like ethnic studies and black studies have actually been ascribed to the margins, particularized bodies of knowledge. Maybe a social science department will hire one person specializing in that, but we still have lots of work to do to transform those others. And the kind of um, these ubiquitous diversity statements today are so far from the visions that people like CLR James and others had for uh, what new forms of knowledge production could be. Uh, throughout your talk, uh, though you didn't directly address this issue very much, there's the, the, the problem of capitalism. And if there is ever a force that 
keeps us incorporated and incentivizes our capitulation to incorporation. It's the machinery of capital. Would you say something about how you, this vision of a wider type of freedom confronts the insidious and omnipresent power of capitalism? Yeah, that's um, so important. So the chapter that I have there, Paul, on labor uh, really shows these struggles um, labor rights union organizing struggles as being um, trying to reimagine um, the basic terms um, of employment, workplace, capital labor, et cetera. So I'll just share just, you know, maybe two quick examples. Um, I write some about uh, James Boggs, this really brilliant labor organizer and theorist in Detroit. In the 1960s, he worked in auto plants there for uh, many years. And, you know, there was this hierarchy in these auto plants. Um, white workers got better jobs than black workers. Um, but the people in the auto plants had at least some like modicum of like wages that people outside didn't. And he had this really amazing insight. He said, there is no way we are going to be able to keep up with these machines. These machines, we are competing for the right to be discarded by these machines. And instead, what we should do is figure out how to make the machines do be useful for us so that we can imagine what another kind of life is in which we are not subordinated simply to the technology. And you know, that's coming up more and more now, right? As we think about the precarity of employment, but it's not a coincidence that it's black workers 60 years ago who kind of understand there is no kind of like hustling a little harder, you know, stirring yourself a little more so that you can make this work. And, you know, he said, like, this is not going to be an easy process, but this is the process we have to think about now. This is what unions should be thinking about now, not just the best contract they can get, but how, who's going to get to control these machines? Because the machines themselves will dictate so much about our lives. And you can see just so many of these examples of at the site in which people are you know, struggling against these forms of um, you know, labor subordination, thinking like, we got to change something about this for everyone. There's not just a strategy to get myself a little farther up. So I'm, I, there are no more questions that have come in the chat. I just want to give everybody one last opportunity. Oh, wait, here's one. Can you talk about the new forms of knowledge production you just mentioned? How do you imagine these forms? How do we begin to visualize them? Yeah, I, I think that like, you know, at other points I used to think like, well, you gotta like in the university create a program or create a school or, you know, institutionalize it and formalize it. And there's certainly something like my own training came from ethnic studies. I was socialized in ethnic studies at Oregon. Having institutional spaces matters a lot, but they're always gonna be contradictory and sometimes treacherous. And so it then holds open the possibility of other forms of um, knowledge production. And um, a lot of the work I'm doing now with students actually takes place outside the classroom. It's trying to get students much more oriented towards local teachers, local social movements, organizing groups, and to think about those experiences and sites and practices as a form of knowledge production. So I think from my perspective, it's a kind of both and. Like, you know, it's wonderful in Connecticut and high schools that we now have this course. Oregon has an ethnic studies requirement as well. Um, but uh, we can't just imagine just the formalized spaces. Um, the very last thing I'll say is there's really tremendous work in many disciplines 
art history, music, archaeology, classics, in which people are saying, I get it, my field is not just neutral, we're not objective, our histories are traced to this, but we still do important things. Literary studies does important work, sociology does important work. How do we reimagine our disciplines to be able to speak to these questions? And it's you know primarily led by younger scholars, by graduate students, but I think that's a very exciting kind of current uh, happening in many, many institutions. Well, Dan, on that uh, optimistic note, I wanna thank you so much again for sharing your fascinating talk, telling us about this amazing book and the conversation. Uh, it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, everyone. For more information on other upcoming events sponsored by the Oregon Humanities Center, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our public events and research programs, visit ohc.uoregon.edu. Thank you, everyone, so much for watching.